Well, last week we left off with Jesus being led to the cross, bearing the wood for the sacrifice like Isaac from Genesis 22. He was crucified on Golgotha, which is the shortened ver version of the word Goliath Gath, otherwise known as the place of the skull, in particular Goliath of Gath's skull. So it's the place where David had put Goliath's head after he killed him as a testimony to God's faithfulness. So it's there on Golgotha that the promised son of Eve crushed the head of the serpent, Satan. It's there on Golgotha that Pilate, the Roman governor, announced to the world that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And it's there on Golgotha that Jesus actually ascended to the throne, having authority over all things in heaven and on earth. Well, today we are still on Golgotha, and we are looking at two different groups who both stood as witnesses at the foot of the cross. So we are in John chapter 19, and we're going to pick it up with verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us in this time as we meditate on this word about your son. In fact, we pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear from him, that your spirit would be amongst us, that we might commune with him, and that we might have hearts set on him, that we might want to follow him all our days. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I noted last week, John does not, does not really go into any detail about the horror of the crucifixion itself, and neither do the other gospel writers, at least in terms of the physical abuse that, was, um, that happened with crucifixion. And the reason, I think, is because as bad as the physical suffering was, and it was horrendous, the real battle was spiritual, and it showed up through you know, mental and, and emotional attacks. And what we are meant to see in those awful hours is Jesus keeping faith with his Father, and in turn, loving his enemies and praying for those who persecuted and mocked him. And it is through his faithfulness, it's through his faithfulness that sin, death, and Satan are conquered. Now, starting with verse 23, we, we do get a picture, though, of how hard that spiritual battle was and why, for example, Hebrews chapter 12 says things like, Jesus despised the shame of the cross. You see, upon arriving at Golgotha, Jesus was stripped naked and then crucified. So you don't see that in, in Christian art. 
And it's really out of respect and, and honor for Jesus. But he was humiliated by public nakedness. This was an intentionally degrading part of crucifixion. And it was perhaps even more humiliating among the Jewish people who had, well, really far higher standards of modesty and morality than, well, than the Romans did. And I'm sure it was, it was part of what, what Paul had in mind when he wrote these, these incredibly comforting words in Romans 8. He writes, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're paying attention to what he said, that is an incredibly bold statement. And you should be asking, how can Paul say this? Well, it's because, as he says, look at what great lengths Jesus went to so that we might have life with him forever. Jesus endured the shame, the absolute humiliation and evil of the cross so that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So when in John 13, Jesus stripped down to wash his disciples' feet, a job fit for the lowest of servants, a job that was, in fact, very humbling, if not humiliating, it was the perfect symbolic anticipation of what he would soon do on the cross. See, in his death on the cross, a punishment usually reserved for insurrectionists, as we, we've talked about a lot, but also a punishment for slaves. Jesus the King was willingly stripped of his glory. He took the place of a condemned slave. In his nakedness, he humbled himself out of his love for us. So he doesn't merely wash our feet, as huge as that was. No, by his blood, we are atoned for. So we read then that there were four soldiers. As this is going on, there were four soldiers who divided Jesus' clothes among themselves. So this would not be unlike uh, people or soldiers going through a battlefield post-battle and taking valuables uh, off the dead, only Jesus was still very much alive as they did it. In the final piece of his clothing, the tunic, that is, this, it's a finely made long undergarment that, that was supposed to be worn close to the body, and it was woven all in one piece, so this is probably the, his nicest piece of clothing, 
So instead of cutting it up into fours, which would ruin it, the, the soldiers decided to gamble for it. So the soldiers here are really a, a proxy for the world that cannot make sense of what is happening right in front of them. So it's very much like Matthew 6, where Jesus teaches that his disciples are not to be anxious about anything, especially things like clothing and food, because God knows we need them. He knows how he, he made us. He knows our, our sin, and he provides them for us. And what's more, he wants to provide them for us. But because the world does not look to its creator for its life or anything else, like the Roman soldiers, it seeks after things like food and clothing as if they are the defining issues of life. Now, of course, as his disciples, as Christians, we should know better. We should know better. Even so, when anyone, Christian or non-Christian alike, starts to believe the lie that life is found and the abundance of our possessions, or, or put more simply, that the, the lie that we are what we own, the gambling for underwear at the foot of the cross seems like wisdom. John tells us in verse 24 that this event was the fulfillment of Scripture, in particular with Psalm 22, which was written by David. And it looks forward to the Messiah. In fact, Psalm 22 is known as a messianic psalm. And it's verse 18 that John points out where it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And John says this is actually fulfilled in this moment. But it's not the only part of the psalm that's fulfilled actually in this moment. Jesus in Matthew 27 quotes the beginning of that same psalm, Psalm 22. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that psalm, David, who is a king, who is the anointed one of Israel, he goes even further and says, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? See, David's suffering looked forward to the son of David's suffering. The anointed one who would sit on David's throne forever would suffer far greater for the sake of his people. And in this moment, the soldiers were really unwittingly fulfilling Scripture, like how Caiaphas, even in his rejection of Jesus, rightly uh, prophesied that it was better for Jesus to die than for the nation to perish. And I think this raises an important assumption that the authors of Scripture took for granted, but sometimes modern Christians don't know what to do with or don't know how to think through. You see, the importance of prophecy, it's not merely prediction, though that's, that's important. Prophecy is not a parlor trick. It's not God gambling on the future. It's not obscure references to things clouded in the mystery of the future. So Jesus was not fulfilling a random verse in the Psalms. Or worse, John was not backloading the Psalm with meaning by finding a verse in the Bible that just happened to fit with what he witnessed with Jesus. No, by, by quoting from Psalm 22, Jesus, Jesus showed that the whole Psalm anticipated him and finds its completion in him. And it works the same way with, for example, passages like Isaiah 25 or Isaiah 61 or Isaiah 53. All of those, Jesus said, are fulfilled in him. What I think is so critical to understand about moments just like this one is not 
that Jesus fulfilled this one short verse written a thousand years earlier. It's rather that God is the author of history and has been, right, has been bringing about all of history to just this moment, which includes the writing of Scripture. All of Scripture points to Jesus. This is why I unreservedly hold the doctrines like predestination. You know, in one sense, I rarely, if ever, use the term predestination uh, or, or election uh, in sermons, despite how often Paul uses them in his letters. But in another sense, I talk about it every single sermon. So if you want to see how predestination works, look no further than to this moment. We've been looking at chapter 19 for, what, about a month now, and what has John wanted us to see? That Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Eve. He is the promised offspring that would crush the head of the serpent. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 22. It is a better Isaac who laid down his life for his people on Moriah, the same place where Solomon would build the temple and that Abraham rightly named the Lord will provide. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Exodus and the temple and the entirety of the Levitical sacrificial system, both being the better Passover lamb, he's the day of atonement, and the scapegoat. Jesus is a better David who conquered a far more dangerous Goliath and suffered far more than his ancestors, suffering in such a way that by his stripes he would heal and bring life to his people and to the nations. So that, that's just a few verses in John chapter 19 where he's assuming all of this. And I could go on and on. I could really nerd out on you on how all of this works. The story of Scripture is not an account of God's chess moves where he was able to keep several moves ahead of Satan and humanity. It's not a record of his brilliant strategies that happened to work out as if what we witness in Scripture might not have happened. No, this is the predetermined plan that God worked out in beautiful and surprising detail over the course of millennia that culminates in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So when God makes a promise, He fulfills it because He alone is the Creator who directs the course of all things. So where the world sees brutality and randomness and chance, thank you, Marx and Freud, well, it gambles over clothing as men slowly suffocate to death on crosses because what else is there beyond food and clothing and pleasure and status and wealth? But to those with eyes to see, in Jesus, you see the culmination of God's beautiful and loving sovereignty in which he has directed all things for the redemption of the world, just as he said he would. It's why Presbyterians rightly understand Paul when he talks about things like election and predestination, which, by the way, I just read from Romans 8, and he says that. We rightly understand him to be speaking words of comfort. Words of comfort because your God has you and he will not let you go. Well, with verse 25, you see a different group at the foot of the cross. Four women were standing by Jesus. It's Mary, the mother of Jesus, her sister, 
who is unknown to us, Mary, the wife of Clopas, also unknown to us, and Mary Magdalene. Now, some of these same women would go to tend Jesus' body at the tomb and in turn would be the first witnesses to the resurrection, and we'll get to that in, in the coming weeks. Now, the lone disciple at the cross was John, who was the beloved one. That is, Jesus loved him as a best friend. He loved him deeply. Now, the other ten uh, remaining disciples had fled and were in hiding. And remember, by this point, Judas uh, was dead. So even so, the, though these, these four women were not part of the, the official 12 disciples, it's, it's right to call them disciples too, just as all of us here uh, are disciples of Jesus. And it shows their faith and devotion to him that even in his apparent defeat, which by the way, crucifixion does look like defeat, still they stayed the course. And this also shows us two of the most important eyewitnesses to Jesus' life. It's Mary, his mother, and John. Now, Mary obviously was given the privilege of being uh, Jesus' mother. She was witness to his birth and his death, which makes her arguably one of the most important witnesses to him. She was there at the beginning of his, his ministry. That's the wedding at Cana. And she was there at the end of his ministry too. I mean, she heard him say, it is finished. So when she sings in Luke 1, otherwise known as the Magnificat, that generations would call her blessed, well, she was right. She enjoyed a unique and privileged status in bearing witness to the Son of God. And we should be thankful for that. Now, obviously, because of Catholic abuses that go so far as, as calling Mary Queen of the Universe and offering prayers to her, Protestants rightly shy away from giving serious attention to Mary. And I, I certainly understand that. But as the old saying goes... Abuse of something does not negate the good and proper use of it. And so with Mary, we do well to recognize alongside Scripture that she's one of the most important witnesses to Jesus. And clearly, many of the insights we have about him, particularly his early life, well, they come from her. John also stands as an important witness too, though. He was beloved by Jesus and was privy to, to insider knowledge throughout Jesus' ministries. And he too witnessed a whole lot of things, and he witnessed Jesus die as well. But I think perhaps more so, John becomes a model for the ideal disciple, not because he was perfect, but because of how he loved Jesus. He didn't make bold assertions like Peter. He simply followed Jesus wherever Jesus went. He set his heart on Jesus, and of all those remaining disciples, he alone cast aside his fear. No, his fear was with him, I'm sure. And he went to the cross because he had to be there with his Savior. We read that Jesus saw his mother and, and John from the cross, and he said, Woman, behold your son, and in turn, uh, behold your mother. So John comments that from that, that moment forward, he took Mary into his own home. Now, Jesus, his obvious concern was for his mother and her, her well-being after he died because this could potentially put her uh, in a very difficult situation. And so even in his suffering, 
He kept the heart of the fifth commandment to honor his parents. It's really difficult when you're in that amount of pain to be superficial about the keeping of the law. Now you tend to, to when you're in pain, you tend to uh, let your heart's desires be known. And in that moment, you see his love for Mary, his mom, but also his love for his beloved disciple as well. But I think there's more at work in this statement than, than, of course, the fifth commandment, though that is, I think, there. After all, Jesus had other siblings who could have taken care of Mary, most notably James, his brother, who would become the head of the Jerusalem church and the leader of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. No, I think what is actually in view here is the birth of the church. It's the birth of the church and how faithfulness to Christ is the defining feature of the new covenant. Now compare this against Matthew 12, where uh, Jesus was told uh, that his mothers and brothers were outside where he was teaching and speaking, and they were, they were asking for him. And he says, who is my mother? Then pointed to his disciples and said, here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus is, in that statement, he's not destroying the family structure. No, rather, he's, he's expanding it. It's why John says in uh, chapter 1, verses 11 through 13, he came to his own, that is Jesus, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's why the Lord's Supper is a family meal. And what marks you out as belonging to the family of God is not birth or nationality or anything other than Jesus himself. It's like what Paul says in Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. So Paul is not saying, this is something that happens a lot. This is a mistake that happens a lot. Paul is not saying that ethnicity gender or social status don't matter he's not saying that no what he means is such things do not ultimately define us and they certainly are not the mark of what counts as a member of being part of the family of god you know in our current climate of american tribalism which is i think a good way to think about what's happening in our country right now what unites people is often things like racial solidarity or political ideology, or college football teams, or a hundred other things that cannot bear the weight of our souls. It's why when those, those sorts of foundations are threatened, people can't help but react with fear and anger or hostility. I mean, let's think about it. You call out an Alabama or an Auburn fan, I mean, really call them out? If they're dedicated, what happens? It's not like, ah, oh, it's football. No, football is life, right? Same thing happens with ethnicity right now. Same things happens with political ideologies right now. But what can separate us from the love of Christ? 
What other foundation is as secure as him? What other community will endure forever? No, from his cross, in his love, he instituted the new covenant in his blood. And we do well to see ourselves belonging primarily and foundationally to that community. America's going to pass away. Conservatism, it will pass away. SCC football, I'm sorry, it's going to pass away. Christ, his word, his kingdom, his church will never pass away. It's like what G.K. Chesterton once wrote. He said, we are all in the same boat in a stormy sea, and we owe each other a terrible loyalty. If you belong to Christ, you owe your allegiance to him first and in turn to his people, or else you aren't rightly a Christian. It's like the difference between Judas, who tried to use Jesus, and John, who loved Jesus. It's like what Nick Batsik recently commented. He said, one of the most powerful evangelistic tools that believers have in the 21st century is the same as that which those in the first century had, namely being united together in the truth, love, joy, peace, forgiveness, and service of Christ. I hope you could hear that every one of those words were all modified and all found their meaning in Christ, in Christ. So like we see with Mary and John at the foot of the cross, we are a people founded in his love, in his love, who are held together by his love. And in turn, we are called to pursue each other again in his love. Well, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have given us everything in your son Jesus. And there are so many things that are fighting for our attention and fighting for our loyalties and fighting for our hearts and our minds that it makes it difficult to see that, especially in in hard moments, that you are with us that you are the author of history, that nothing escapes your notice, that like with Joseph, you will take everything and use it for good, even our good. There's no God like you, so full of steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness. Thank you for this grace and this mercy, and that we have the confidence and the comfort that you will never let us go. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.